Welcome to episode 103 of the Synergen Leadership Podcast. Have you ever thought about culture and how it's built? And would you like some insights into how you can create a great place to work? Well, my name is Julian Carl, and I'm the CEO and the co-founder of Synergen Group. And in today's episode, we're going to answer those two questions. Here we are in season three of our podcast, and my purpose for the podcast continues to be the same, to raise the standard of leadership. In today's show, I speak with Colin Ellis, who is the author of Culture Fix, How to Create a Great Place to Work. Colin is an award-winning international speaker, facilitator, and author of two best-selling books. His latest book, Culture Fix, How to Build a Great Place to Work, is the world's first how-to guide for building vibrant team, department, and organizational culture. Colin delivers speeches and programs around the world that inspire and motivate individuals to become role models for others and to provide organizations with the skills to build cultures of success. And he does go to extraordinary lengths to provide tailored experiences that live long in the memory. Whether it's the way that projects are delivered, how teams work together, or how to change the DNA of an organization, Colin uses practical information on how to make change easy. He uses case studies, experience, and plenty of humor to keep people engaged and laughing. Now, during the course of the conversation, we explore Colin's book in a lot of detail. Start off by asking Colin why he decided to write the book. We speak about what culture is and where we actually start. We discuss the six pillars of culture and how we apply them. And I finish the interview by asking Colin about how do we make culture stick. So keep listening. As always, we'd really like to hear your thoughts about the interview with Colin Ellis, author of Culture Fix, How to Create a Great Place to Work. Welcome to Season 3 of the Synergen Leadership Podcast with Julian Carl. Join Julian as he speaks with leaders and authors from Australia and around the world, giving you the opportunity to share in their journey and learn from their expertise and knowledge. Julian also shares some of the tools and techniques he uses as a leader, mentor and facilitator, helping you to build your leadership capability and improve your confidence as a leader. Welcome, Colin, to coming to the uh, into Synergen HQ and being part of the Synergen Leadership Podcast. Really appreciate it. Uh, so that everyone has a bit of a sense of who you are, who is Colin Ellis? Good question. It depends on who you talk to, Julian. Uh, who is he? He's uh, people always say I'm always taller. People always say, "Oh, you're always taller than than I thought you were," because they see pictures of me or they see my LinkedIn profile. Somebody did actually say that I looked like my LinkedIn picture the other day, which is a good thing. It's a good thing. It is a good thing. Uh, so I was a permanent employee for thirty years, originally from Liverpool in the UK. Julian, that's home. Uh, emigrated to New Zealand with the family, a little boy in two thousand and seven. A lifestyle move. Um, that's where I really, I'd, I'd been private sector in the UK up till then, you know, in a mix of customer facing roles and then fell into project management in the late nineties. Um, yeah, that's all I did in, in New Zealand was government and project management, I headed up some big project departments there, some real gnarly stuff, went through some big stuff and earthquakes and all kinds of other things. Uh, emigrated to Melbourne in Australia in 2013 and, and worked for Vic Roads very briefly. Uh, before deciding that the world needed to hear my viewpoint on project management, which the world was not interested in my viewpoint <laughs> on project management for about 18 months. Uh, so I ended up taking a contract here and there just to kind of keep the money coming in. Um, so yeah, for the last, so since 2016, you know, I, I, I public speak, I run development programs, I help organizations change and write books. 
Okay. And I bet you, spending a bit of time in New Zealand, you'd prefer the current New Zealand Prime Minister to our Prime Minister? Yeah, I do prefer the current New Zealand Prime Minister. We should probably leave it at that. Um, I did actually, which I can share with you here, I when I published Culture Fix, I thought, I'm going to send this to political leaders because, geez, if anyone needs a book on culture, it's, it's political leaders. And probably within three weeks, I got a, a letter back from Jacinda Ardern's office saying, thanks so much, Jacinda's delighted, yada, yada. I'm like, that's so Jacinda. There's no way I'm going to get that from Scott Morrison. And anyway, about a week later, I got a letter from Scott Morrison. That was really, I was like, okay, thank you, Scott. Cheers. <laughs> so we are here to talk about your book, uh, Culture Fix, How to Create a Great Place to Work. Why did you decide to write this book? Where, so it's one of those things, Julian, that, that, that either build a great team or build a great culture was something that for me as a former senior exec, as a former manager of teams, that was always top of the list. Whoever I reported to is your job to make sure we got a good team. It's your job to make sure we got a good culture. And so, you know, you, you do what you do in any job. You cherry pick bits and pieces from different people that you've worked, for, uh, worked with. You go to a conference, you hear someone speak, you write something down. I didn't really read many business books, but every now and again, I would get something like from a Richard Branson book. I'm like, oh, this is what this is what it is. But I just felt that I could never find the book that told me about what great culture was. Even when I, even when I moved to Australia, you know, my job was to change the culture of a, of a team within Vic Rhodes. I was like, right, I'm going to go out, I'm going to find the book. You know, and I bought The Culture Code by Daniel Coyle, which was good. It talked about kind of the culture of a baseball team and then one or two other examples. You know, and in time I read Powerful by Patty McCord. And all these culture books were good, but there was no how-to guide. And, you know, given that teamwork has been my passion for donkey's years, I thought someone should write the book that actually gives away how you do great culture. So my motivation really was to write something in a way that was accessible to just about everybody that actually gave them the information on how to create great culture. Yeah. Well, I want to start with a bit of a, an excerpt if I can. You can read the book in any order you like. Front to back is conventional, but some sections will look more interesting than others so that you just go right ahead and jump around as you see fit. That said, I've tried to frame it in a way that makes logical sense and will be most practically useful to readers who are trying to establish a new culture or fix an existing one. Some stage, though, you'll probably find yourself thinking something like this. Geez, this sounds hard. There's no way we could do that in our company. If I had a dollar for every time I'd heard a client say something like this, I'd have $62.50 now. It's a classic case of fixed mindset thinking. People talk about culture as being the most important thing, but they look for every possible way to avoid doing it because, like most things, it involves risk, time, and money. Instead, they back quick-fix interventions which may provide short-term impetus but offer nothing in the way of long-term change or growth. So why does that happen? Why, why do people say that it's too hard? What is it that's behind that, do you think? Because I think what's ultimately behind it, Julian, is the fact that they know that if they if they want to create a great culture, uh, they have to change the mindsets of individuals. And there are some people who are almost deliberately getting in the way of change. And so what they do is they go and say, okay, well, what's the latest relevant thing that's on the shelf that we can buy? You know, Agile is the latest thing that we're doing. 
um, and let's implement that in the hope that people change. And they never do. They never do. So they stick it in the too hard basket because because fundamentally they don't want to have the difficult conversations with people. And uh, unfortunately, that's still the case. You know, I wrote that. Uh, I wrote that. Uh, this time last year, around this time last year, and it's still the case today, mm. is oh, it's it's too hard. And I, it, it becomes too hard because we never give people the skills. You know, I, I often use the, the kind of analogy about, you know, teaching a kid how to ride a bike. We never tell them, oh, it's too hard. We never say that. Mm. What we say is we prepare them for the fact that, listen, I'm going to show you how to do it. You are going to fall off and it might hurt. But I'm going to help you and coach you. I'm going to put you back on the bike. And they'll get to the point where it'll feel easy to do. And that's what we need to do with culture. We need to give people the skills so it becomes easy to do rather than keep telling ourselves, no, it's too hard. Mm. So what is culture? Uh, Culture is the sum of everyone's attitudes, beliefs, behaviors, traditions, stories, it pervades through absolutely everything. It's the thing that gets you out in the bed, out of bed in the morning. It's the thing that motivates you to do your best work. It's the thing that makes you want to build relationships or kill relationships with individuals. It's the thing that makes you feel safe or unsafe in, in the working environment. It's the thing that convinces you to go for a drink or temp and bowling with people. Mm. And, but, and it belongs to everybody, Julian. It, it, it's, you know, when, when Peter Drucker said, oh, culture eats strategy for breakfast, what he was alluding to there is, sure, you can have the best strategy in the world, but if you don't have this well-defined culture that people feel connected to, forget it. Mm-hmm. It's not going to happen. And, and all of the, the, the biggest successes in business around the world are down to the cultures that were created. And all of the biggest failures are down to the, the gaps that existed within those cultures or the fact that people didn't take the time to address them, Julian. So, you know, it, it's the sum of everything that an organization does. It's not owned by senior managers. It's owned by everybody, which is why when senior managers tell you this is the culture, that little child inside you goes, no, it isn't. <laughs> And so you ask a question here uh, just after speaking about what is it, but where do we start? So where do we start this whole journey of culture? Uh, we start by saying, okay, well, what do we do well? And, and you know, most organizations will under, undertake some kind of pulse survey, some kind of engagement survey that will tell them one or two things they do well and about 50 things that they don't, such as the nature of engagement surveys. But I always believe that what you should do as an organization is talk about the good things that you do, you know, kind of accentuate them, say, listen, as an organization, there's a bunch of stuff that we do really well. And then kind of draw a line under that and say, right, what are the things we need to fix? And almost stop what you're doing. I know literally you can't stop what you're doing, but, you know, take as many people out and say, right, let's redefine what a great culture looks like. And most organizations get culture wrong because they never do that first bit. They never say, right, how are we going to work together? What are the behaviors we expect of each other? How we, you know, what's what's this thing called collaboration? How are we going to make time for new ideas? What's our vision of the future? What are those values that hold us together? Good, done. They never do that. And so where you start is by acknowledging the good that you do and then pausing and saying, right, let's define what a vibrant culture looks like for this for this organization. As I uh, was reading the book, I, you, you have two models here, which I'd never, never heard of before. You had an input culture model and an output yeah. 
culture mile and I thought, well, I need to dig into that because I, I sort of read a lot of books and talk to a lot of people and never heard that sort of phrase before. So at a high level, what are the input model and then what's the output model? Well, the inputs are all the things that make up culture and no one's ever tried to, that sounds horribly arrogant, like, oh, I'm the first, aren't I amazing? Uh, what can I, how can I put this? No one's ever put it into a model where it makes sense. Yeah. We talk a lot about the inputs. We talk a lot about vision and values and collaboration and all these kind of things. Uh, but we we mostly we mostly talk about them at a at a higher level, and we never really take the time to understand that these are the things. If we do them well, contribute to a great culture. The output is generally the thing that we talk about, and and organisations are great at saying we've got a toxic culture, which is the output of the fact that they've taken no action to you know kind of around the inputs, if that makes sense. So I always say that. It, if you, these are all the things that you put into a culture and depending on how well or not you do that, this will be the output. And so if you don't do anything, there's no input. So the output is going to be stagnant. If you do all of the things here, if you, you know, we put all these things in, then you're going to get a, a vibrant culture. And, you know, for the organizations that succeed, they spend more time on putting stuff in than talking about the stuff that they get out. Hmm. And when you talk to organisations, do you do you find there's this like is it is it resistance? Because I feel like we've been talking about culture for a long period of time, and I feel like people can say, "Oh, I like that culture, or that culture," but we just seem to be having so many examples of poor culture still. I think there's it's not resistance as much as it's confusion, Julian. I think that the fundamentally, you know, and I believe in the good of humans, and I think most CEOs when they say we want a good culture, generally they mean it. But, you know, we've had a number of high-profile banking, especially this yeah. week, uh, where the culture is is a shocker. You know, and then when you read all of the reports, people like you and I will dig into all the reports and say, oh, they said they wanted a good culture. Why didn't they get it? You find out that they did nothing. You know, often I say you're only as good as the behavior that you walk past. Um, and so I think there's, there's, a, there's a general level of confusion is, okay, we want a good culture, but we just don't know where to start. And that's where they flick back to that quick fix and say, great, let's go open plan. Uh, let's, let's go agile. That seems to be what everybody else is doing. Rather than taking a look at actually what, what's good about what they do, but also what have they learned? And what generally they learn is that cult- cultures evolve and it requires regular oil and regular maintenance, regular inputs in order to get that vibrant output. Hmm. So what is the value of culture? How, how, how do we define the value of culture? Well, most business leaders would, would define things like, uh, well, well for the first measure they'd use is engagement. That's how they define whether they've got a good culture or not. And that's fair enough. But uh, engagement, profitability, sales, productivity, uh, quality uh, of product, defects, reduced safety incidents. These are all of the measures of a good culture. But fundamentally, it's about happier staff. I think if you've got happy people, you're going to get all of that stuff. And so, you know, I, I was speaking with the CEO recently. He said, all right, very, very quickly, if we had to, he said, how would, how would you go out on the floor now and measure how good our culture is? I said, I'd go around to everybody and say, are you happy or not? You can only answer once. Are you happy or not? I was like, depending on how happy they are, I'll tell you whether you've got a good culture. I was like, if they, if they were happy outweighs they were not happy, then you, you're doing some right things. 
but mostly it'll be the other way around. Mm. Uh, so I think where you've got happier staff who feel that they can contribute and turn up and do the be the best them their best selves. Um, also acknowledging that there are days that they show up and they can't be their best selves, but that they've got a group of people around them who will help them, either by leaving them alone. I like you sit in the corner, you just do what you need to do, and you go home and deal with whatever you're dealing with, or else they'll, you know, kind of buy them a coffee and say, you know, can I help? Or sometimes, and I've been one of these, is you get a kick up the backside. So okay, well, what is it? What do you need? You're not performing. Um, and so I think, you know, happier staff is we all do our best work on the edge of uncomfortable is where we feel a little bit challenged, but we're supported by a network of people. And then we get all the results, as, uh, get all of the business results, you know, because of that. Hmm. You reference a video I've seen, uh, the, the, the lone nut, and you, you talk <laughs> about the idea that culture evolution starts with a lone nut. So in a corporate sense, who, who are these lone nuts and... Yeah, I was one of them uh, <laughs> for many years. And I think people did actually use the word nut. I got called a nut job once, uh, which I took as a massive compliment. Uh, these are the people within businesses who who are just a little bit maverick, but in a really good way, in a highly emotionally intelligent way. They do things that seem to be a little bit off the wall, Julian. They're kind of random. They'll do things where you're like, what? You know, why, why do they do that? You know, I talk about some of the stuff that we used to do in my teams. And we used to come up with different ideas that we could do to surprise people about the way that we worked. Things like 17-minute meetings, 21-minute meetings, when everyone's doing 30 minutes or 60 minutes. You know, we would go out and paint each other's portraits on a Monday afternoon. We would have breakfast together. Um, and, you know, I, I love Derek Sievers' TED Talk where he, where he has that kind of lone nut, that one person doing just bizarre things in the middle of a field. And, and it attracts people and it does. And providing that you kind of welcome them into that kind of community of, look, we're trying to do something different culturally. And you share that, which is exactly what you're doing here is you're, you're inviting business leaders and people onto your podcast so they can share ideas. It, it is what we want to do is really kind of grow exponentially this thing called culture throughout the organization just by doing a, a few different things. So I always say to people that there will be people in your organization, in your business who are doing different things. Don't fear that. Embrace it and, and ask yourself, well, how could I do that thing in my department, in my team? You know, and I always say to people in their own teams, go and read other books, listen to podcasts, watch videos. What are they sharing that you can do? And sure, it might feel a little bit maverick, but no one ever got sacked for creating a great workplace culture. And, you know, the great thing about great culture is you hit your targets. Mm. And so you get the rewards. Um, and so these people live in every business. They're just considered to be a bit maverick because they don't conform. Mm. Maverick, I like that. Yeah. I like the sound of maverick. It's a, It's got that Top Gun connotation <laughs> as well. Ever the Gen X are looking for a reference. Yeah. <laughs> you also talk about this idea of subcultures and you reference the fact that uh, often that's part of the whole silo problem that a lot of large businesses have. So what do we do about organizational culture and then these subcultures which, which exist underneath yeah again there's this lack of understanding of culture so i talked about that confusion that people have people think that you can set the culture of an organization at the highest level and it will just permeate down no that's command and control that absolutely doesn't work what you want to do is take the same approach to building culture in each of the teams otherwise you get the silo Colin's doing one thing with his team in that area Julian's doing one thing with his team in that area and while 
whilst they might both be vibrant in their own way, there's this disconnect with the way that they communicate, the way that they collaborate. I'll give you a great example. So I'm working with one organization at the minute and they've done personality testing or personality surveys, I think three or four years ago, but they both done completely different things. So one had been doing Myers-Briggs. So they had one way of talking about personality. Another group had used DISCs. And so they had another way of talking about personality. And it wasn't that they were wrong. They just did different things. So you had this massive disconnect. And so it's really, really important that people understand that to create a great organization culture, you have to have great subcultures. And in each of those great subcultures, if you do similar activities to kind of define culture, then you'll get this cohesive culture that everyone understands, got the same language, the same way of doing things. We understand what behavior collaboration, we understand what all of these things are. And so consequently, it just feels cohesive and joined up. Um, but yeah, you know, I, people often say to me, oh, where should I, if, if I want to change my organization's culture, where should I start? I was like, start by creating your own great subculture first. Show everyone else how it's done. Because if you can't practice what you preach, people are just going to look at you and go, well, when was the last time you built great culture? Mm. Yeah. Mm. So I want to explore the, 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 the six pillars which sort of tend to form the foundation of the book. And I, I like this because I think it gives people the how-to. Like, let's look at this thing first. Don't worry about everything else. Let's just look at this. So the first uh, pillar is this idea of, of personality and communication. And because you talk about the idea that the way into any culture is through its people. So what are we doing in this first pillar? Where do we start within this first pillar? This is all about building relationships. This is all about getting to know each other, um, Julian. And, you know, and, and I often say this starts almost prior to day one. This starts, you know, when you apply for a job. It's part of the interviewing process. Um, it, yeah, I got, got, got asked a question at a conference in the US and they said, oh, I've just applied for a job. How do I know if they've got a good culture? I was like, well, based on the speed of response, the quality of response, how long they keep you waiting in between letters or emails or whatever they do. I was like, you feel it from you feel it from day one. Once you're actually in the job, it's how you how are you welcomed? How do people introduce themselves? You know, and I spent some time with a, a tech company this morning and and they've got massive video screens all the way around the office. And on those video screens are staff profiles. Now, they've got five offices globally. So the people that were flashing up on the screens were people in New York, San Francisco, London, Melbourne. And and they're the little things that even though you might never meet someone, there's a little thing up there that's kind of said, this is how you get to know someone. And so it's crucially important. That why I made it the first pillar was that if you don't ever make the time to get to know someone else, then you can never develop the empathy for anybody else so you're never going to build connection if you don't build connection then everything else you do all the other five pillars are meaningless uh, or you're not going to get the output you want because you've just never found the right way to either communicate with someone or work with someone uh, so it's crucially important that people take the time to build the relationships because really that's what culture is built on hmm. so in pillar two you explore the idea of vision and you speak about the, uh, on the on the eating habits of culture yeah. So I'm curious about the vision one. What, what's been your experience around organizations and, and either their ability to set vision or their inability to set vision? Yeah, it's largely the latter mm. uh, because most people see vision values, which we'll come to in a second, they see it as a branding exercise. Um, 
the organization. So, so a lot of my work, the genesis for a lot of my work uh, happened in 2005. The last organization I worked for in the UK was a retail company, clothing retail company. And they, they got, they got the culture definition spot on. They recognized that they were getting left behind. They had on, no online presence. Their major competitor was online. And they recognized that if it didn't change their culture, that they would never be able to compete. And so for two days, we spent off-site as a business, as 300 people off-site, redefining what the culture looks like. And the vision statement, they, they very clearly laid out. It has to be aspirational. It's got to be words that are focused on the future. It's got to be something that guides our decision-making. Um, it's got to be something that excites us. And I just love that whole, you know, typical extrovert. I love all of that. I love that stuff. I want a future-focused statement. But too many vision statements are so long-winded and, and you know, it's, it's not that the exercises that they've undertaken is wrong. It's just that they've just gone about it in a way that kind of disengages. So, you know, in the book, I talk about H&M, H&M, who, who I love as a business, but their vision statement is to use our size and scale to lead the change towards a circular and renewable fashion industry, all while being a fair and equal company, right? <laughs> Halfway through, you lose the world to live. You're like, what? Yeah. And like, you know, you could probably condense that into one sentence that's world lead in renewable fashion, which is what I do in the, in, in the book. And so I think, you know, for it to be a meaningful vision, the staff have to be involved in it. It can't be a senior management only activity. It has to be aspirational. It's got to have a sense of the future and where you want to go. And you have to read it as a member of staff. You have to read it and go, OK, that's awesome. I want in. Mm. And that's what a good vision looks like. But again, most people treat it as a marketing exercise and come up with something that long that is like, what is yeah. that? Yeah. It's certainly not designed for people. No, no exactly right. Mm. And so much in our cultures kind of goes against what we're looking to create. What we're looking to create is something that really engages with human beings. Mm. And most of the activity that we undertake mm. does the opposite. Mm. You know, Jason Fox in his book, Game Changer, said you should be able to print a vision on a T-shirt. Well, geez, that's XXXXXXL for that particular vision statement. And it's going on the back as well. Yeah. <laughs> I often think that a lot of the stuff that happens is is we, we, we try to play to the corporate, to the ASX, as opposed to thinking about the actual people that are in the business. And I think that's a real problem we have. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. And I and I think when you look at some vision statements, it feels like it's been created for an annual report. Yeah. You know, and, and I a good example that I use is Harley Davidson. And Harley Davidson's vision statement is we fulfill dreams of personal freedom. Now, I was over in uh, Milwaukee to speak at a conference uh, not so long ago, and that's where they're headquartered. And I'm like, I'm just going to check to see if they actually live this vision. And you walk in uh, to the to the head office, which is also a showroom, and and there's kind of no salespersonal hassle in you. All of the spaces, all of the posters, all of the kind of paraphernalia they've got on the wall is people on bikes in the country, in the wild, in the desert. And so it feels like personal freedom. So even as someone who doesn't ride bikes, right, no interest in that at all, I walked in, I was like, I could see, I could see their vision being lived out. Mm. And, and that for me is when you know that you've created something that's humanistic, that's not just for the financial bods or for the market or for shareholders. Mm. I actually could feel that and I love that. Could you see yourself on a Harley I after did. going I in could, there? <laughs> I could. But for me, it was very easy rider. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's the image in my head. But on a Harley, yeah. you know, and I could see myself riding through Monument Valley kind of on my own. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. 
Well, they've certainly set the example then if you've sort of gone from being someone who's not a biker to potentially seeing yourself as a biker. That's well, that's that's me just connecting mm. with their vision. And yeah. what they was what they sell is dreams of personal freedom. And all of a sudden, I'm sat on that big bike in the middle of a desert, having never wanted to do it before. And so I really bought into the vision. And that's that's the power. You know, when you get it right, that's what it looks like. Mm. Pillar three is about values. And I always find values really interesting because our our client base tend to quite often have their values sorted out in, in that they will at least know what they are at a corporate level. As soon as I start to work down through the organization to the leaders, the leaders will, the level of engagement with the values drops a lot and quite often frontline leaders won't even be able to recite what those values are. So how do we start to, number one, clarify these values, but also start to embed them so they actually mean something? Most of the mistakes that people make around values it stems from the fact that they don't actually understand what they are and what they end up being then, Julian, is a mix of behaviors and things that should just happen by default. You know, I love it when I see collaboration as a value. I'm like, as opposed to what? <laughs> you know, like literally innovation as a value is like, well, if you don't have innovation, you don't have collaboration, they're pretty much dead in the water. Mm-hmm. These things should be inherent within your business. These aren't the emotional compass of this particular organization. And there was there was some research done by the Financial Times in, in conjunction with a PR company, I think, called Maitland. And they find that there were kind of three standard ones like respect, integrity, and innovation, like these standard these standard values throughout most of the FTSE 100 organizations. Like, again, just paying lip service to values. And so really, values are the things that, that get lived. Now, a great example of values is Zappos. Zappos are an online shoe retailer. I talk about Zappos a lot in the, in, in the book. And Tony Shea, who's their CEO, says, you know, that he doesn't understand shoes, but he understands culture. They have 10 values. Now, if you read in the book, I'm like, 10 values is too many. Hmm. Right? It's just too, it's too many values. There's too many things to remember. Highlighted. Oh, there you go. You got them all highlighted. <laughs> there they are. Uh, and I'm like, 10's too many. How do, don't you do 10? And yet, so I spent three days on their culture camp in Las Vegas. Every single member of staff knows what the 10 values are. They know the number of them. And they understand how the work that they do contributes to each value. And this, the guy that I was sat next to sounds quite cult-like. I was like, but what you're trying to do is create something that people feel connection to. And what you want to be able to see is the values lived in public. You don't want to see them laminated, you know, lived, not laminated, right? Uh, and, and so by getting the staff involved, which Zappos did, and, you know, this is a theme that runs through everything in culture, when the staff are involved, they got them involved in, you know, what what do they believe the values of this organization are? And then they came up with statements that were very specifically related to Zappos and the kind of business that they are. And then all of a sudden they mean something. And then what you want then is the leadership team to keep referring back to them, saying, no, that's not that doesn't line up with our values. That individual doesn't line up with our values. One organization that I'm working with at the minute, I'm helping them change their organization culture. They've started using uh, their values to hire, having never done it before. I was like, yeah, because you want two interviews. One, technically very good. And then secondly, how do you contribute to our values? Because if you can't do either one of them, you don't get the job. People are very good at having the technical interview, Julian, but not not the value-based one. And it's only when you start doing things like that that you start to live your values in public. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And just just for the for the the listeners, because I've got it highlighted, here are the ten Zappos oh, values. Yeah, yeah. 
deliver wow through service, embrace and drive change, create fun and a little weirdness, be adventurous, creative and open-minded, pursue growth and learning, build open and honest relationships with communication, build a positive team and family spirit, do more with less, be passionate and determined, and the final one is be humble. Yeah, they do all of those. They do They do absolutely all of those. I, I can't really emphasize um, how much I was surprised at how much they lived them out in the open. Now, I love the one, um, create fun and a little weirdness. Yeah. yeah, they did that. So while I was there, they set up a Monopoly game, this massive Monopoly game in the middle of the kind of courtyard. And they played it. There was a customer service team played it and they got some food and they did it over lunchtime and then a little bit after, in the afternoon. And then the whole thing was taken away. Like it was there for about four hours. Mm-hmm. And it just felt so unique. I just thought, how many organizations would do that for that team for four hours? You know, most people would be like, we've paid for it. It stays there for a week. Yeah. So it's filthy, dirty. No one's ever using it. And, you, and it does, you know, they've got that, that, that little weirdness runs through it. Yeah, it was a great place to be. Mm. Pillar four. Behavior very much follows on from uh, the, the the values piece. So, mm. what what do we do around our behaviors? How do we articulate them? How do we make sure that they're actually being lived and dreamed? And how do we do that? Yeah, the biggest thing that holds most organization cultures back is behavior. And let's make no doubt about it. And for decades, there have been some shocking and appalling, like properly shocking and appalling behaviors. You know, I read a report in the paper this week that, you know, most people wouldn't report any kind of harassment that they received in the office because of fear, you know, and just straight away is like speaks to the behavior of individuals in, in not dealing with these things. Also, you know, in people not doing their job, actually not performing. And and so what you need to do is to create um, that shared understanding of what's expected of people. And the behaviors really should change every year because you get to a particular point, then you need a different set of behaviors, then you might have some other challenges to create a different set of behaviors. But simply coming up with five behaviors isn't enough. And, and so what what organizations need to do, redefine the behaviors you expect from everybody. And then what what's expected of Colin in finance? What's expected of Julian in IT? What's expected of Jane in marketing? You know, how you know, how do we demonstrate these on, on a daily basis? And when someone doesn't behave in line with what's expected, they have to be called out. Now, there's three conversations. The first one is always uh, empathy-led. Is everything okay? This is not who you are. I just want to make sure you're good. How can I help? The second one is, we've been here before. I don't want to have a third conversation. I'll help you do anything you can to get performance back on track, your behavior back on track. And then the third one, someone with HR in the room, and then you're on a process. So many people fear that. Mm -hmm. But if you don't send the message that that behavior is not acceptable then it just becomes the thing that everybody does. And they're like, well, if Colin's getting away with it, I'm going to do it as well. And so, you know, you have to redefine what you expect of each other. In an ideal world, we'd all just come into work and be great human beings. We'd all be high in emotional intelligence, you know, kind of that capacity to be aware of, manage, control our emotions. That would be great. We'd have a growth mindset. We'd be fixed on what's possible, not what's not possible. But the reality is, Julian, that that's not the case. And so I think, you know, what organizations have got to do is to redefine this is what we expect of you and then hold them to it. Something you you mentioned just then really resonated with me. I'm really quite familiar with the whole fixed and, and... growth mindset and Carol Dweck's work and 
But I, I, I'm wondering how organisations go about dealing with individuals that are clearly fixed, but they don't see it that way. Mm. They see themselves, oh, I'm not fixed mindset. I'm happy to encourage growth, but their behaviours don't really support that. Yeah, Kurt Kaufman and Marcus Buckingham said in the in their movie in their book uh, First Break All the Rules, they said that self aware individuals are the building blocks, are the foundation of great teams, and they're absolutely right. And so many, uh, so many people lack self awareness. And certainly in my career, you know, and one of the things that I had to do was very, very, very quickly. So we would understand uh, undertake some kind of personality exercise where you kind of got a sense of who you are and what you were about. And then what I did was introduce some kind of feedback mechanism so that we could all say, Julian, here's one thing you're good at, here's one thing to think about. It was never bad, never good, bad, but essentially that's what we want to do. But really it's down to managers to set the expectation. And one of the biggest issues we have in in workplace cultures is they're not very good at setting expectations because no one showed them how to do it. And I go into great detail into how to do that uh, because without that, you can never hold them to it. So you can't tell someone to be positive. You can't tell someone to have a growth mindset. What you have to do is show them. You have to help them. You have to coach them. Most managers don't have the stomach for that. Mm. And so unless you're prepared to challenge yourself to do the things that you don't want to do, don't expect it of other other people. And so, you know, often I, in my last job, I had a very fixed mindset individual. And I said, listen, what I expect of you is this. He's like, oh, well, you know, you're an extrovert. I was like, it's got nothing to do with introversion and extroversion. It's all about how you show up. I'll create an environment where you feel safe and it's quiet enough for you to do your best work because we had open plan. I was like, I'll set that up. But you've got to show up every day and do a good job. If you don't do a good job, then we'll be having a conversation about your performance. I was like, and I don't have to want to have to remind you to be positive about some of the things that you've got to do that yourself. And so it's only through having those kind of courageous conversations that we get people to start to see that actually, if I want to be part of this team, I've got to think differently. Mm. And out of curiosity, what did you decide to do? Uh, so, uh, so uh, yeah, there, thanks for that. <laughs> so he fell asleep in a meeting on week three. Um, so I had to, yeah. One of my meetings as well, oh, like, you know, know how, that's possible. how is that possible, <laughs> right? His ears are constantly ringing, although there'll be people thinking, well, I've just woken up. Uh, fell asleep in one of my meetings, so I told him that that kind of behavior wasn't uh, acceptable and I didn't want to have to do it again. He fell asleep in another meeting. And so we went down the process where he got a letter uh, and then he was the model employee. Wow. model employee because you know I, I I like to think well I, no I did I did everything in the right way everything in the right way and I've only been able to do that because I got it wrong so many times right you learned as a manager uh, but by the th- you know and he was pushing near to retirement and you have all these people particularly in the public service uh, particularly in government who say oh well you can't do that in government yeah you can I've done it right you, should, you don't want to do it. I don't want to do any of that stuff but that was my job and you know it really made the point that we were deadly serious that if you don't book your ideas up you don't bring something to the party then it's not going to end well and he was the model employee after that I got no problems with his performance probably after the first six to eight weeks oh. yeah great outcome for you yeah, yeah. <laughs> you talk about the idea of recognition and reward I think a lot of organizations struggle with this one uh, in terms of how they recognise, do they reward? And there's all this debate on what to incentivise, what not to incentivise. What are your views on it? Oh, I, I, you know, for me, I found when I was working, Julian, that if you 
if you reward individuals based on their skills, what you do is you single them out as being special and it does nothing for collaboration. It does nothing for belonging. What we've said is Julian's special because he has that skill and you guys aren't. Uh, I always found that where you recognize the behavior of a team, so showing commitment, showing discipline, showing courage, what you then got was more of that from other people. Uh, yeah, I was dead against uh, money uh, as a reward. I think that, you know, that's generally taken care of as part of your kind of annual salary. And sure, you know, I benefited as a senior exec. I benefited from bonuses. and But, but you know, one of the things that I would used to insist on was that we measure how happy the team are. We measure engagement. I liked to be measured on culture mm. because I really wanted to be kept on my toes. Uh, but but I think that, you know, where you can reward people with experiences, you know, we used to buy just kind of rubbish trophies. Even now with the, with the workshops that I run, I run a little hackathon on the second day where we come up with ideas and I always give the best idea trophy, which I buy from op shops. I'll find like a bowling trophy and one one workshop I couldn't find a trophy so I got an empty uh, soda can I put a post-it note on it and put best idea <laughs> and stuck it with sellotape and gave it to them as a trophy <laughs> and they still got it on their desk and so a little things like that that create a sense of togetherness a sense of fun uh, but really what you want to do is elevate the behaviors that they demonstrate uh, you know if you, all parents listening would know and I've got two young kids myself that if you if you really accentuate the behavior you get more of the behavior mm. yeah we touched on before about uh, performance management, but I'm always curious to dig in as much as I can because mm. I think it's an area of business which a lot of leaders struggle with. It's an area of business which some leaders will try to abdicate to HR. Oh, it's a HR issue. Yeah. So how do, how do we go about making performance management part of our culture that's just what we do? Yeah, I love that. Yeah, we abdicated to HR, who then very quickly washed their hands of it and go, yeah, no, you can't do anything. You know, I used to love it. And I got this from so many HR departments. I was like, okay, well, I've done all of these things, you know, with Clive or whatever. I'm going to have to do this. And I'm like, no, yeah, it's a really long process. Just so you know, it takes six months. In other words, we can't be bothered to go through the process, please. Please don't make us do it. I'm like, it's your job. Uh, I, I, so I think, you know, and, and you know, I talk at a number of HR conferences, is, is what we want is common sense support. And common sense support looks like what you've got to do is make sure that managers have the skills to manage people. There was a, a survey that came out of Harvard in 2016, and what they found was that 69% of managers were uncomfortable communicating with employees. Now, it's kind of a problem. Just when you've got little. almost three quarters of managers who don't want to communicate. But we don't give them the skills um, to set expectation in the right way. And we don't give them the skills on how to manage performance. So every time I work with organizations kind of across a year or I, sometimes I do it quarterly, I say, well, what do you want to know? You know, I'll get you, you define what you want to hear and I'll come and bring a keynote. One of them is always performance management. Because what HR departments to haven't done is set managers up for success. And so by defining what you expect behaviorally of people, that's step one. Then by holding them to it is step two. And then the third thing is you have to be serious about it. And for those people that consistently behave in an adjunct way to that which has been defined as part of the culture, they have to go. And often the sign of a good culture is how many people are being performance managed. And so if you've got an engagement score of like 60%, which, yeah, it's kind of not bad. It probably 85 is the best that it gets engagement scores-wise. So 60%, yeah, you're all right. You're doing all right. 
but you should have at least, you know, in a staff of 100, probably five on performance management to send the message to everybody else that this behavior thing is, is, is frankly just not acceptable. And, and you see people make excuse for behavior all the time. You know, in, in the book, I talk about the Me Too movement and that's what we've been doing for, for behavior. And there's so many instances of organizations right now where people are still making excuses for the, for, for the behavior of their staff. Um, yeah, it's just not good enough. Mm. You also write about diversity and inclusion. I, I find this one an interesting one because, number one, because a whole, it's it's led to a whole new job description. So you now have D&I managers. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm always curious about what, what people actually see diversity as because I think there's a lot of focus on a very small part of diversity. Oh, we need gender diversity or we need... But I think diversity is so, so big. So talk to me a little bit about... Yeah, yeah. The, the focus is it tends to be on gender diversity um, and then people end up going down the quota paths. Um, it's like, oh, we've got to have this many and this many. Um, and and there's, there's a nobility to that. In my experience, Julian, there's a nobility to that, to, to, to kind of recognize the fact that you've got a gender imbalance. Um, and it's really important that you do something. You know, there's one organization that I know based in Australia, they lost three of their senior female execs and they replaced them with three white middle-aged males, which sends completely the wrong message to the rest of the organization, bearing in mind the other three members are white middle-aged males. So that so that's something that they're clearly not thinking about the, the, mm. the kind of imbalance that they have. Um, but secondly, you know, for me, more importantly, is cognitive diversity is making sure that we that we have different viewpoints at different times. So you don't end up with this kind of set, sense of groupthink where everybody thinks the same thing. And when you hire the same people from the same backgrounds with the same upbringings, that's what you're, you're just going to get this fixed one idea. And then what you end up doing is violently agreeing with each other on a daily basis and the organization never moves forward. You know, kind of Nokia are a famous case of an organization that didn't have much in the way of cognitive diversity. So they kept telling themselves that everybody would want this product forever. Kodak are the same. Everyone's always going to want to take a roll of film down the chemist to get it produced. Mm. Yeah, nah. And so, you know, we have to think, again, more broadly about diversity and inclusion because we want everybody's ideas at the right time, but we want different people's ideas, which is why, you know, when I work with, with different teams, you know, I worked with one IT team recently and they said, oh, you know, we really don't think, we're not thinking enough outside the square. What should we do? I was like, well, do something outside the square. Invite someone from marketing into your team and say, listen, if you were designing this from the start, what would you do? And I said, I guarantee they'll say, don't do what you're doing right now. Mm-hmm. And so find different ways to include other people's viewpoints and make sure you've got a real diversity of thought. And whilst also make sure you've got, you know, kind of the right balance of staff as well. Mm. Pillar five, it's all about this idea of collaboration, mm. which seems like a bit of a hot topic at the moment in the circles I run with. We need to collaborate more. Yeah. We need to collaborate more. So so talk me through collaboration. Love that one. We need to collaborate more. Great. What are you doing? Well, we're going to go open plan. Awesome. The thing proven to kill collaboration. Excellent. Great. Um, you know, when people think collaboration is 
endless consultation. They think it's harmony. Uh, they think it's sending out emails by copying everybody in. You know, what we want is you know, openness and transparency. Yeah, but do you? Is that what you really want? Uh, and again, collaboration is just an agreement between individuals on how they'll work together. But people don't do that. You know, I say you do a lot of work in the project space. And I say to project managers, you, you, what you need more than anything else is to build the team first. Because when you build a team, you get a good plan. Because the plan is where it's at when you're delivering a project. But if you don't have a good team, no one's going to feel connected to anything. They're not going to be engaged with anything that you're doing. Um, and consequently, you're not going to get this collaboration. I worked with one organization. They said, oh, I said, do you use any tools? And and we'll, we'll talk about this in a minute. But they said, we use Slack, but it doesn't really work. I'm like, yeah, no, no, Slack works. Trust me, it yeah. works. It's like what you've not done is come together and say, listen, how are we going to use that tool? When are we going to use it? When's face-to-face the most important thing? When's, you know, kind of communication tool? How are we going to use email? And so, you know, what, what, what they don't do, and this is why it's such a crucial pillar, is if you don't agree how you're going to work together, then you're just going to fill up your inbox with emails and, you know, nothing will ever get done. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I'm always fascinated with how organizations view it because it's the, it's the open plan. It's the... Oh, we need to get a representative from every department. It's and it. I just don't think it leads to the outcome they're actually looking for. No, you know, and and when in doubt, what what organisations do, what individuals within organisations do, is they invite everyone to a meeting without giving any thought whatsoever as to the value that they add. They don't go and talk to them and say, Julian, I really need you in this workshop for these reasons. They find a space in everybody's diary, put it in there and just expect people to turn up. If I if I book it, they will come. It's like, <laughs> yeah, nah, that's definitely not going to work. Yeah. Definitely, yeah. I want to touch on another hot topic, hot word that you, you, you reference in the book and it's this whole idea that agility is not a shortcut. Mm. Being agile right now if is is that's what it's all about in every single context, and which I find quite interesting considering the where the, the whole agile thing started. Uh, you know, you got agile HR and you got agile this and agile that. <laughs> <laughs> so why, why isn't it a shortcut? And, and what are we going to do about fixing this whole idea of obsession with agility? Well, the good news is it'll fix itself in five years when the next management fad comes along and we <laughs> yeah. jump on board that instead. Uh, so I, I just want to go, so, so agile, right? So it's all born out of the agile manifesto. It was written in 2001. So it's 18 years old. It's not new. But, Many people, they focus on kind of the core principles of Agile and they don't read the manifesto itself. And in the manifesto itself, there's this great paragraph that that the guys wrote, and it was mainly guys and one female, I think. And they said that um, Agile is about organizations uh, not just talking about people as their most important asset, but treating them as their most important asset because their biggest beef was there was no empowerment and trust for these software engineers to go and do their thing, right? That that was their biggest beef, right? So the whole concept of Agile was, tell us what you need. We'll then do what we feel is the right thing to deliver value in a way that the customer appreciates. We've just done Big Bang for Y2K. We recognized that was horrible and painful and we ended up being told what to do. We don't want that. We'll deliver value incrementally, but trust us and empower us. And these are two things that run through Spotify's cultures, trust and empowerment. But organizations 
What they want is the latest commodity thing to buy. So there was a, there was a report in, in the UK uh, the year before last, Julian. 93% of CIOs said that Agile had already failed them. And most, most were frustrated that it had become a commodity, a sales commodity. I'm like, yeah, you idiots are buying it, though. <laughs> That's why it's become a commodity. It's the latest things like Prince 2 in the early 2000s. Yeah. That's going to be the answer. Like Six Sigma, that's going to be the answer. Now it's agile. and But don't get me wrong, like Scrum as a method or whichever kind of mode of agile you're doing is a technical skill, right? And you need that. But if you want your organization to be truly agile, it's a culture change. You've got to redefine the way that you're going to work together. You've got to manage out those fixed mindset people who don't want to deliver value quickly. Mm. But you've also got to realize that some things take a long time to do. I worked with a, a rail company in Canada. They were like, oh, yeah, we want to find out where we can be agile. I'm like, dude, you, you're laying track. There's very little that's agile about that. I was like, however, what we can do is things like stand-up meetings. You can do kind of um, boards. You can do Kanban boards. They're, they're kind of, but they're all technical tools. But agility is how you respond, how you think, what's your mindset like. And so I just want people to stop buying agile and to start giving their staff to, the opportunity to define what the culture of agile means. And then they'll start to get some of the gains that they're looking for. Mm. I could talk on that for an hour. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're like, quick, let's move on. No, well, I, I'm going to dig deeper because you, meant, you mentioned a couple of the uh, the tools like Six Sigma and Lean, mm. and you've got a whole section in your book where you talk about the systems and tools, mm. and you talk about the three, which is ISO, Six Sigma, and Lean. And this is really interesting because we do some Lean yep. and have just been asked to sort of start doing more of the Six Sigma stuff. Okay. So oh, it's coming back. It's coming back. It's coming back. <laughs> it's like Ebola. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm keen to hear, before we go down this path too, more, too much, keen to hear. It's a, you know, and I make the point in the book that there's nothing wrong with any of these things. You know, I've got loads and loads of badges myself to improve my technical skills. I think it, it would be folly to ignore things that improve the way that organizations work. But, you know, you take something like kind of the Toyota system, you know, like lean manufacturing. What people forget is that that whole, I guess, the whole process, if you want to call it that, uh, that Taichi Ono, you know, kind of came up with was, was all about people. It was all about culturally what's going to make people feel good about producing this product how can we it's not it's not just about eliminating inefficiencies it's all about well how can how can we help them to be happier in their jobs such that we reduce the amount of inefficiencies that we have and and that's what these things are all about so i think you know i always say regardless of of you know kind of what you do if you're not across things like design thinking you know you at least have to have a working knowledge of what six sigma is you know go on a scrum code do all of these things but but bear in mind that they make you technically better but they don't make you emotionally better and being emotionally better is where we get collaboration. It's where we get innovation. It speaks to our behaviors and it's how we end up living the values and achieving the vision. And and so that's why you have to create the cultural conditions to implement anything. So I'm in talks with one organization at the minute and they're going agile and they, they've, they've got this big list of suppliers of agile methods. And, and I said, none of it's going to work. I was like, listen, you know, I don't wish to be fixed mindset when I obviously sell growth mindset. As I put, none of it's going to work unless you create the conditions for it to work. Because what you'll end up doing is blaming the third party supplier because you didn't get the outcome. 
And yet they, they will have delivered exactly what was required. But you want your outcome is is improved engagement. It's faster value. It's all of these things. Going on the technical training course is probably a third of that. Mm-hmm. Two thirds is what do I need to change about myself? Uh, uh, one third is what do I need to change about myself? And the other third is what do we need to change about the way that we work together in order to leverage that third or the third to get the outcomes we're looking for. Mm. I suppose that that ties very nicely into the, my next sort of point. I want to talk through is this idea of the working environment. How do we how do we create the sort of working environments which do support this pillar of collaboration? By recognizing that what we've got essentially is is four different kinds of people. Now I'm not I don't want to put people in boxes here, uh, but you know, kind of young young theory of personality found that we're a mix of thinking and feeling, uh, introversion, extroversion, and kind of the way that we make decisions. Uh, the, the reason that you mentioned open plan before, the reason that it doesn't work is it's suited to one kind of personality. It's suited to mine. Mm-hmm. I don't want like hot desking, brilliant for me. My personality doesn't want to sit next to the same person every single day. I carry everything around in my bag, right, that I need, and then I'll just spread it everywhere. Uh, I want to have a conversation in the kitchen and for everyone to hear it. That's just the nature of my personality, <laughs> right? Uh, and this is why, but this is why uh, introverts kind of, it kills introverts because they need quiet spaces where they've got things around them that make them feel comfortable. You know, I talk about people, 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 they want to put up pictures of their families. They want to have plants. They decorate their desks. They do all of this stuff. As soon as you put them in a hot desk, immediately they can't do their best work because they're not working in an environment that suits them. You know, I was over at Atlassian, Atlassian Software Company in, in Sydney. I was talking to Don Price there, who's the uh, the work futurist. Yeah. And he was saying, he said, you know, on average, we, we found that, you know, we kind of need three and a half workspaces within the office. Three and a half workspaces. He said, you know, you need quiet spaces where people can just sit at their desk if that's what they want. Or else we've got some private rooms where they can go in and either close the door or keep it open. We, we need kind of uh, collaborative spaces with whiteboards and, and, you know, things that we can draw on and things that we can beam in on. And they've got these really cool technology tools that they use. So you can draw on a whiteboard and it beams it to another whiteboard. It's really, really mm-hmm. fancy. It's like, and we have big social spaces. So we have things like, you know, kind of table tennis tables and, and kind of relaxed spaces with more comfortable furniture and big screens that we can watch and kitchens and bars. And it's like, we have all of that because we recognize that if we try and force one way of working on it, everyone it just won't work we want people to feel that they can walk into the office pick a space to do their best work and go and do it and every every one of the the great organizations that i visited to write culture fix the book it's what they had you know if you want a desk you can have a desk you know some organizations it was part of your induction what kind of desk do you want julian oh do you have them walking desks yeah sure we can get you that they pay to rent the equipment the walking thing um and then if you want to get rid of it you can get rid of it if you want a standing desk you can have one of them you know and and the, because they recognize that all of that contributes to your productivity your happiness and ultimately the profitability of the company so talking about pillar 6 so innovation this is, uh, it's funny, one of our big clients has just, uh, they've reset two of their values and innovation is now one of them. And uh, it's interesting because when you hear the CEO speak, he talks about this idea that innovation isn't always the technology. It's not always that you know, an increase there. Sometimes it's just a, a little tweak in, in how we work. And I'm curious about your views on innovation and, and how we really start to drive some real innovation. And, and 
the the CEO is right there that you just mentioned. It, it is in the little things that you do every day, and it's up to us to innovate almost our own way of working. But it's you know are the light bulbs too bright. You know, I, I did I did a, a hackathon with one organization, and you know I always say look for ideas everywhere, which is an idea that I stole from Google, um, and. You know, what I look for ideas everywhere is don't just concentrate on your job. There could be something that really bothers you that people talk about. And so we did that. We did this little kind of mini hackathon as part of the culture program. And the, the winning idea was to move the fridge 18 feet. <laughs> right. Okay. Because the fridge was nowhere near the coffee machine. It was round the corner. Right. And so they paid. $300 for a chip, $300, I want to say 300 maybe it was $600 for a chippy to come in and build a new cabinet for a fridge that was next to the coffee machine. And, mate, when I went back, everyone was talking about the fact that moving the fridge. I was like, that was the best start of the two days, <laughs> the fact that you moved the fridge. And it is, it's looking for ideas anywhere. But if organizations are serious about innovation, is that they've got to give people time. There's so many people that've got back to back to back to back to backs. You know, it's always a sign that organizations aren't innovative when they're telling you how busy they are and they've got back to back meetings. Is you've got to make time for creativity. You've got to make time. So, you know, kind of my I guess my innovation formula is time plus creative creativity, uh, plus safety. It's got to feel safe. In other words, failure's got to feel okay. Not that you wanna deliberately fail but it, you, you you've got to feel like you're not going to be blamed that's where you get true innovation and and it's not about creating the next airbnb it's not about creating the next netflix it's about creating the next innovation of, uh, the next iteration of whatever your team is doing to make you five percent better because if you can try if you can aim for five percent better every month you're 60 percent better at the end of the year how mm. amazing would that be mm. yeah and, and you got, can you think of a really good example like a really good example of where someone has brought in a whole innovative working environment that's really delivered a real business outcome. So not just the happy people, but it's delivered that business outcome for them as well. Well, I, you know, the, the, the 3M one's always a, a good one, the 20% the, the time, which Google famously copied, where yeah. they give the people one day a week to work on whatever they want. Yeah. You know, it's something that we copied or I copied, and we would take two hours a week. We called it 5% time because, yeah. you know, working in government, we didn't really have the time. And it, you'd be amazed at the little changes that that, that people could make yeah. um, that fundamentally transformed the way the way things got done. You know, one in... in, in uh, one business that I worked with, we we reduced the procurement process down from three months to six weeks, which doesn't sound like a lot. But when you have to buy assets, materials, people, that six weeks makes such a massive difference. And all we did is we looked for inefficiencies in the process. We knew if we went to procurement and said, your process is too long, you need to shorten it, then it just bounced us out of the department. Mm. And so what we did is we laid out the process and said, okay, well, where do we contribute? Where can we take time out? How much time do we spend filling out a form here? What's the most important thing? And so we presented a couple of op options. And, you know, one very simple option, which is ridiculous, but they had a Word document that you filled in and you spent so much time formatting the Word document that it used to take hours to fill in. Mm -hmm. So we replicated the Word document into a fillable PDF and it reduced the time to fill it in by about, I don't know, 
Easy, it, let's say it went from maybe an hour to 10 minutes, oh. right? And so there are those little incremental changes, and that's innovation in action. Yeah. Um, and that change, and, and of course, they didn't want to do it. Um, and then we presented it to the CEO, and he said, This is absolutely insane. Why wouldn't we do this? Mm. It, you know, this could be a game changer for you guys as well as everybody else. But that was the fixed mindset they were holding on to. Yeah. yeah. So, how do we make culture stick? We need a bunch of people who want to make it stick, uh, first of all, Julian. And, um, you know, I think, uh, and I talk about this in the book, there was one survey that said 84% of organizations kind of start these culture initiatives, but, you know, only 3% ever successfully completed it because they didn't start in the right way. Lots of people approach me and they'll approach, approach you guys as well and said, listen, this is what we want to do. This is the outcome that we're looking for invariably they want to start in the wrong place so it's about how do we help them make the case for change and so i think you've got to be by to make culture change stick you've got to be really clear about what the expectations are at the end you've got to understand that the finance the cfo will always want a number of some description um it's hard to put a number on it tony shea the ceo of Zappos, he said, I don't understand why people always want to put a number on culture. He said, what, you know, kind of what's the measure of hogging your mom? Mm. And I really love that. I was like, yeah, because you get that sense of belonging, of care, of affection, of engagement. But the fact of the matter is, and that was no different, is the CFO wants a number on it. So if it's an engagement score, great. Undertake some activity, but make culture a measure of senior management. That's how they start to take it seriously. Uh, and you make it stick when you embrace everybody. And say, listen, this is a collective approach that we're taking. You're all part of it. And then you don't allow anyone to sit on the outside of it throwing stones. Mm. And so one organization that I work with, deadly serious about making it happen, they managed out two people who deliberately tried to work against the new culture. They sent the message. They said, we have spent time, we've spent money, and we are deadly serious about changing where we are right now. So and we want you to be a part of it but we don't want you to be those kind of brilliant jerks. We don't want you to be a really good technical person, but just an idiot. Mm. Uh, And they managed them out and it sent the message to everybody else that if you wanted to be part of this thing, you're all in, we want you. If you don't want to be part of it, either you go or else we'll performance manage you. Mm. Um, And so I think, you know, it needs good planning. It needs lots of energy. It needs senior managers to role model what they expect of everybody else. Often they don't want to do that. Mm. And this is where they make the mistake often of bringing in a branding firm or a consulting firm to come and kind of define it for them. And they go, there it is, right, let's roll that out. But they expect it of everybody else, uh, but not themselves. But everybody owns it. Um, So it's got to be well-defined, and then it's got to be lived on a daily basis. And it's got to be accepted that cultures evolve. It takes between 9 and 18 months to really see those tangible changes. You'll get the spike straight away when you do some early activity, because it's different. And then it's about maintaining the energy, maintaining those new ideas, that new thinking, challenging each other to be better. Um, and then nine to 18 months, you'll get the gains. Mm. Yeah, I, I really liked uh, in the book, you sort of gave this, this list of, a, and you call it a culture deck, mm. which includes visions, values, behaviors, principles of collaboration, measures of success, why people would want to work there, and development opportunities for staff. When I read that, I thought that's a really useful checklist for a leader organization to just start working their way through. And if they don't have that, 
well, then then they know where at least to start. And, but they can't talk about their culture. If they don't have that, they can't talk about their culture. You know, every every time I start working with someone or when I speak to people in, in conferences, Julian, I say, describe your culture for me. And they can't do it. You know, one organisation go, oh, well, we're agile. I'm like, oh, God, I threw up a bit in my mouth. <laughs> oh, God, what? What was that? Um, they can't describe it. And the culture deck was, was made famous by Netflix, uh, although Valve's handbook kind of predated that to around about 2011, that was in the public domain, which they, they're the real thing, first things that talks to culture. Um, and really, it doesn't need to be, Netflix was 118 pages, it doesn't need to be that big, it can be like 40 pages. But when it's got all of the information in that you just described, it provides that sense of this is who we are, this is what we're about. It can be used on so many levels, not just for hiring and firing, but also for decision making and deciding how to undertake different uh, pieces of work. Um, but yeah, that's where you bring it neatly together. And you know, like I say, it takes a couple of days. You know, I do. It, you know, I do it all the time. Run a workshop. We produce a culture deck. We send it to staff. They're like, "This is great." It's like, yeah, you came up with it. It's yours. You own it. Yeah. So, if there was one big thing, one big thing from the book that you'd like people to take away, what would be that one big thing? Uh, culture doesn't create itself. That's the one big thing. I think there's an assumption in far too many organizations or in the minds of senior leaders that you can just bring a group of people together, tell them that culture is important and sit back and watch it happen. It doesn't create itself. You have to be deliberate about culture. You have to spend time on it. You have to spend money on it. And then you have to continually oil it. And a great way to do that is by role modeling it. So, yeah, that the big takeaway is that you have to be deliberate about building and evolving culture if you want it to be a differential. Mm. And so are there any books, people that really inspire you and get you going? Oh, I think there are. There, there always are. I, I'm often inspired by the little stories uh, that I that I hear within organizations, the people that I meet in at conferences, Julian. I, you know, I was inspired just last week in Canberra. There was a... There was a kid who walked past a homeless guy on the street. He stopped, he turned around, he got his wallet out of his pocket. He took $20 out of his wallet, put it in this guy's hat. And he said, there you go, my friend, I hope that helps. Spend it wisely. And like, you know, it'd been a long day and I kind of choked up a little bit. I was like, that is an incredible little piece of humanity. So I like those. I, You know, I follow people, people like Brene Brown. Brene Brown, I, I, I kind of love the way that she presents her message. You know, there's always a... It's serious, but it's a sense of fun, which really resonates with me. I, Seth Godin is a guy who I, I really admire, even though he does marketing. It, his message is so simple, easy to absorb. Gary Vaynerchuk is, is another guy who's just like right on point. He doesn't really give a damn when he'll say that. Mm. Um, you know, but, you know, there are success stories all over the world that, that, that inspire me. And the books, there's a whole list of them at the back of my book. You know, I wanted to call out all of the great books that I read in order to to kind of write culture fix, um, yeah. There's, there, there are there are just so many that you know I can take one small idea from and it inspires me to write something. Okay. So if people want to find out more about you and the specific type of work that you do, where should they go? Uh, so on the culture side of things, you can go to uh, culturefix.xyz. That's kind of the hub for everything that we talked about in the book. Uh, LinkedIn is the social. 
media place to find me. So feel free to, to connect on, on LinkedIn. Um, you know, I like to share lots and lots of information. We've also set up a Culture Fix community, Julian. It's, it's okay. literally called culturefixcommunity.com. Again, I think about when I was working in business, I just wanted to be part of a virtual online thing where I could just go and share my ideas with other people, get other people's opinions. So we launched that three weeks ago and it's now got 200 members from around the world sharing ideas and sharing articles and videos and books and things. Uh, so culturefixcommunity.com is another place you can find me too. Okay. And any last words on culture? Uh, my last word would be you can do it. If you're listening to this thinking, oh, that sounds a bit hard, that sounds a bit tough, I, I want you to know that I've been in exactly the same place in lots of different organizations. Some of the toughest organizations that people tell you you can change culture um, and you can do it. You totally can do it. You have to look at yourself in the mirror. You ask. You have to ask yourself what you're going to give up. You know, somebody said to me, oh, you seem to do a lot of work. What don't you do? I was like, well, I don't spend hours and hours in front of TV. You know, I'm not a massive Netflix watcher. All of a sudden, I'll find, oh, I'm really into The Mandalorian at the minute. I don't know when this is going out. Will be end of the first series when this has gone out. So Disney Plus is a big thing in our house. Uh, so I'll find something. Uh, but, you know, I, th there's lots that I've given up and... and in order to help myself get better. And I think, you know, you can definitely do it. If if the if the spirit is strong, uh, you've got to be physically fit, you've got to be mentally fit, you've got to show up every day, and you've got to constantly stretch yourself. Um, and when you do all those things, you can achieve anything. On that note, Colin, thank you so much for being on the Synergy and Leadership Podcast. My pleasure, Julian. Thanks, mate. Well, that wraps up episode 103 of the Synergen Leadership Podcast, another awesome thought leader conversation for you to consider. This podcast is produced by my firm, Synergen Group, as a way of giving back to the leadership community. So if you are interested in having a conversation with us, I'd like to encourage you to head on over to the Synergen Group website. Tell us what you liked about the episode, tell us who you'd like us to interview, or tell us what sort of content that you're actually interested in. As always, if you are an iPhone listener, please feel free to head on over to the Apple site and leave us a review and a rating. It really does help us build awareness of the show. In next week's episode, we have our first curriculum ecosystem episode where I'm going to introduce you to a framework we've been working with, which is all about specific diversity framework. Until then, love to hear what you think. Happy listening. Happy listening.